from the beginning? When a person, what does that mean? Rational soul. What's the rational soul? Yeah, the part of the person that tries to justify life. The and moderator. They're, right? And ultimately, in a Jew moderates between the godly and animal soul. Right? And that's what makes us a person, right? That's, that's why it's called a person. Fortifies his divine soul and wages war against his animal soul. Okay, so there's two things. There's fortifying the divine soul and waging a war against the animal soul. We're going to talk about the first thing first and the second thing second. Okay? Now, as I said in the end of yesterday's class, the, the godly soul, the divine soul, um, it doesn't really need to be fortified. It's godly, right? You can't do better than being godly, can you? I'm hoping that answer to that is no. Yeah. So what does it mean then we're for, to fortify the godly soul, fortify the divine soul? Making it more powerful. Making it more powerful in the way it influences which soul? No. The rational soul. So when the rational soul, what's with it? The rational soul is trying to make who more powerful? The godly soul and how it influences the rational soul, okay? So that's a little bit weird, right? So I'm going to give you an analogy. Um, a teacher and a student. So using the ballroom metaphor, right? ballroom dancing, right? Who's leading, right? Okay. So first off, a teacher and student is not a power relationship. It's not a power dynamic in the classic sense, right? It's not that the teacher's like, well, I'm in charge and I have to do what I say. And I'm like, that, that's not education, right? In fact, that's one of the reasons why I like to teach in my note. Because the younger your students, the less educating you do and the more disciplining you do. Okay. Disciplining. No, that's why I teach adults. Oh. My wife teaches high school. My wife teaches high school. I that's why you like teaching. I like teaching my note because I don't have to do any discipline. Oh. A little bit, and there's the post-high school program and the men's program. There's a little bit of disciplining, but I, I as much as possible, like say, like the administrational discipline, I'm not disciplining. Um, Wait, which high school is your wife teaching? My wife teaches in a non-Chabad high school called Chorev, which is the, one of the top high schools in Israel. Um, they either get ranked first or second almost every year. Yes, by Michalak. Yeah, she's the head of the English department there. So, but she has to deal with fourteen to eighteen-year-old girls, you know, discipline issues. I get to come in and teach mature adults because I pick for myself the easy life. Okay, um, so it's not power in the sense that you know one one is one is one is coercing the other. Okay, but there is and that's like the analogy of ballroom dancing, right? It's not one person dragging the other person around the dance floor, right? But there is someone who's leading and someone who's following. So in the, in the teacher-student dynamic, who is leading and who is following? Teacher is leading and student is following. We're all good with that? That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Why? What? Yeah, but why is the teacher leading? More knowledgeable. Or more experienced. Yeah. Okay, but why does that mean the teacher's leading? Leading is something that happens in between two people, right? Because the students are following what the teacher knows. 
Mm-hmm. Why are the students doing that? Mm. They believe the teacher knows. And they want to learn, right? So who's following whose lead here? Think about it. Why is the teacher teaching the topic that they're teaching? Why is the teacher teaching in this way? So overtly it looks like the teacher's leading and the student's following, right? But really what's happening? The students are actually leading, but they're leading in a more, a more passive way. But the fact that they're coming to class... The fact that you're coming to class like this. Like, everything that I have done in preparing this class and thinking of how to present the material in my delivery, ideally, right? Because real life is more complicated, but ideally is all based on what? Us it's based on you, my sense of who you are and what you're interested in, how to, how to make it as relevant, right? And if, God forbid, there was no students here, would I be doing any of this? And if there were different students, if I teach different students, I teach them differently, right? Hopefully. So who's adjusting themselves to who, really? The teacher's adjusting to the student, right? The student is inviting the teacher to teach them. So if we look overtly in the interaction, right, the teacher knows stuff, the teacher's presenting stuff, explaining stuff, the student's trying to follow along with the teacher's saying, right? That's what's happening here. But if we look a little bit deeper, we say, actually, the teacher is trying to meet the student's desire to learn, the student's, based on the student's capacity to learn, right? Based on the student's method of learning. And so what happens now if you have a mediocre teacher and an exceptional student, what's gonna happen? Not mediocre in terms of what they know. There's mediocre in, in, as a teacher, but they're an exceptional student. It's work. It will work. As well. Not as well as you had an exceptional teacher, but people have this interesting thing human beings have. Again, this is, this is what, making it ideal, not in the real world that can be more complicated. People have an amazing way of rising to the occasion when situations demand it. So what happens if you have a really good student and you're a mediocre teacher and the te- student demands more of you? They ask better questions. What does the teacher start doing? They step up. They step up. They start preparing better. That's, that, again, now, they may not do the real life because you're not just a teacher of other things going on. Or, it's an analogy, right? What happens, though, if you have a really good teacher and, and not such a great student? But now you moved out of the realm of teaching and you've moved into a different realm. In other words, you, what you have to do is you have to step away from teaching and move into some other realm, a realm of inspiring, a realm of discipline, whatever it is, right? And that comes at the expense of the teaching. Okay? If you have a student who comes to class and that student, they want to learn and they're serious about learning, right? And they are... They're willing to, to, to do what it takes in order to learn, right? Um, and they ask questions, and when the question when it's pointed out that that's not the right question to ask, they, they, they take the criticism. Like they're, they're like the, the model student, right? What that, um, w- w- how that affects the teacher, again, we're presuming the teacher wants to teach, is that the teacher has to become more engaged in the teaching process to draw on untapped potential in their ability to teach, right? On the other hand, if you reverse it and the student is not really so into the learning 
and the teacher's really into the learning. What the teachers do is to step away from the learning and teaching process and figure out what other things inspire, inspiration, discipline, etc., to help create a learning environment. So yeah, the, the, the teacher then can really be a, the, the, can really make a change, but it's not strength. It's actually it's actually causing the teacher to do less teaching, which is why in kindergarten how much teaching happens. Why? There's a ton. There's a ton of there's a ton of learning that happens just because children absorb things. I'm, I'm talking about more of a like, a, 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 yeah, yeah, a, 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 a thought through process of I'm very little. I have kids. I have many kids. They've been through kindergarten. It's a lot of making the child feel comfortable. It's a lot of playing. It's a lot of telling stories. Right. There's 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 very little. Let's sit down and learn the olive base, for obvious reasons. Right. Three and four and five year olds. They're not, I mean, they're willing to do it for 10 minutes and then they're done, right? And even that requires them being in a good mood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah? I think, like, as someone who has taught kindergarten, like, as being in the classroom, like, I think that's, like, fundamental. Like, that's the basis of everything. Right, right, right. In fact, Hasidus actually says, while we're on the topic, that the non-teaching that the teacher does comes from a higher place in the person and affects a deeper place in the student, which is all true. But for our purposes, I'm speaking it in, I'm going to present it in a negative light because to understand what our text is saying. But, and this is something you should know, any dynamic that Hasidus speaks about, as an analogy to understand what's going on um, in spiritual terms, that same dynamic can be looked at differently to bring out um, the opposite. Because if nothing is, nothing is um, sufficient on its own, you're going to need different types of things. For our purposes, the, the, the downside of the non-teaching activities um, is that what they, what, what they, what they, they don't have what, what, what Hasidus would call in Hebrew a panemius effect, an inner effect. Um, and to use just one English word is, is that it's not transformative. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Let's use just the example of like academic, academic teaching. Okay? When you teach someone academically you're teaching something. So let's say, for instance, they don't know how to do calculus. By the end of the teaching, they themselves can do calculus, they don't need the teacher anymore, like it's done, right? Something has changed, something's been transformed in their mathematical abilities, okay? And if we talk about, for instance, if you were to, if you were to um, go to a, a philosophy class, in a university, if the philosophy department is any decent, right? What the philosophy teacher is really interested in, not that you happen to know what a bunch of philosophical texts say, but that you actually, you now think about the world how? As a philosopher. Right, as a philosopher. You now approach things more philosophically, right? And so therefore the teaching, by the way, in a philosophy class is going to be very different than, say, in a math class, right? Because the transformation you're trying to affect in the mind is very different. Now, the part of the person you're changing is not the deepest part of the person. Proof being that you can change it. In kindergarten, you're actually touching the deepest part of the person, their value as a human being. Um, and their sense of belonging in society and in place and feel like, like, like it, it, you're, you're, and so the way Chassid would say is that if you're trying to transform, you're not doing very much transformation, but you're, you're drawing out of yourself and out of the child, the, 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 on the human level, the deepest, most fundamental parts of a person. Um, 
And so, in the sense of getting at the depth and beauty of what it is to be a human being, you know, that's an amazing dynamic. We're talking about understanding a process of changing something, right? Or to put it another way, that to say is that deep down, everybody's a wonderful human being, and kindergarten teachers bring that out of them, bring that out of themselves, and bring that out of the kindergartners, and and then in that, there's a little bit of, you know, learning your shapes and your letters and stuff like that. For our purposes here, we're, we're talking about the idea of actually making a change, and that's not an academic sense of like, you know, being a philosopher or learning mathematics. We're going to talk about something much more fundamental, but it is going to be a change. So the, the model we want, to, we want to understand is the, is the way that the teacher is changing the student. In a way, and, more, and we want to go a little bit deeper, in a way that the student could not change themselves. Because another thing that Chassidah speaks about is that the real need for a teacher is when you could not make that change without the teacher. Okay. Very often, um, what we would consider teaching is someone has read the material before someone else and now they're orally presenting the material. But the student could have just as easily read the material on their own. For instance, um, there's these lessons in Torah. Or, okay. Now let's say... You guys all read English, yeah? So let's say I sat down and gave a class and I just read the Hebrew and translated it, right? So I'm teaching you, right? And you're following along. But it's already available in English, so you could have just read the English without me. You don't need the living interaction of the teacher. What kinds of things do you really need a teacher for? Yeah. Well, it depends on the person. To get a sense of the value of the text? Like... Torah or specifically helps to have a teacher who can teach in that way. The personal element, also like how you bring the like the dry information to life. Well, what if I can do that on my own? I don't need a teacher. It's through someone who's done it, who's applied it to their own life, and can then share that knowledge. Okay. Why did you say math? Why did I say math? I think you need someone to, I mean, how could a student go in knowing it? No, it's not they go in knowing it. They could figure it out on their own. I mean, someone had to figure it out on their own, right? Okay, so the, the, the thing is like this. The reason why I'm hesitant about like saying any of your answers are right, but I'm not saying any of them are wrong, is because... Any particular thing you say, this you need a teacher for, it's not true that thing you need a teacher for. What you need a teacher for is when the thing is completely beyond your experience. Now, that varies from person to person. Okay, so let me give you something to it. Some people are very mathematically inclined, naturally. They, they experience the world mathematically. It's intuitive to them. So therefore, what happens is any mathematical knowledge they have, what does their mind do? It builds on it. So now for them, it's just really a matter of effort and time. Okay. Um, the Rebbe had a, a, a brother who was a mathematician, and he died before publishing his, th- his uh, PhD thesis. And it wasn't finished. And so the Rebbe asked uh, um, someone else to finish it posthumously, so it should be published in honor of his brother. And he didn't tell him that it was his brother. He says, is it worth publishing? He says, yes. And he said, one of the comments was that there's very little citation. Everything is everything in the paper is, is, is nothing is nothing in the paper is usually when you have a paper like you you take 
the, the literature as is known, and you build on that, and it's, like, it's, it's all like done from scratch. There's no, there's no citations, no cross. Everything is, is just derived in the papers. And after the Rebbe told him, his brother, he says, my, bro- my brother is a very independent-minded person. So he didn't really rely on other people. He just took the idea in his head and built it all in his head and then wrote it out in the paper, which is, you know, it's very brilliant, but usually academic papers want you to have, like, mm-hmm. citations. Um, so he had to go, one of the things that this person did was he had to go look for where these ideas had already been addressed in other papers. Um, but not, so, and, and that's true in many things. Some people the, the notion of, of something being applicable to real life is something that's very intuitive to them, that speaks to them in a very real way. And so almost anything they derive and figure a way to apply it. And other people, like unless it's spelled out for them, it's just they're, they're, they don't experience the world that way. And so what ends up happening is that if you want to think of it, every person has kind of a scope of where they're at, like physically, of like how far you can reach. If the thing you're trying to reach is beyond your scope, then you need a teacher to pull, reach down and pull you up to that place. And that varies from issue to issue, of person to person, stage in life to stage in life. Does that make sense? Okay. So any example you're going to give will be true of certain people and not true of others. Right? And you, one of the things that's hap- that happens is, like, let's say for something for you, you don't need a teacher for, and someone else does need a teacher. One of the things you discover is you don't even necessarily know how you do what you do. Like if you're really good at math, and then someone, you're tutoring someone who's not good at math, one of the difficult things is, is realizing, wait a minute, how do you explain this to someone who doesn't just get it? They don't just see it. Well, so so the pros, part of the process of a teacher is figuring out how to reach down and meet the need of the student. But the fact that they need to do that is indicative that, that this is something that the student actually needs to talk to them because they, they can't see it. Okay? So when you're describing the, the work Torah or, so you're saying, well, some people, they just see how it's relevant and so they can like, bring it down to you, but like, you're not in a place where you can see that. And so no amount of like, setting you 10 rules of what to do will help you. But the idea of teaching, and this is what's critical, the idea of teaching is that you don't, it's like teaching is like the, the famous thing, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, and if you feed, give him, teach a man to fish, you hope he lives near a lake, because otherwise that's pointless. <laughs> right? The idea is that a teaching is effective. It has transformed the person so that their scope is different than what it was before. They don't need the teacher anymore. Okay. So now in that dynamic, there's kind of two layers. The overt layer is that the student's following the teacher. Right? The student has the, not, the, 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 the teacher has the knowledge, the teacher's presenting it, the teacher's guiding the student, and the student being a good student is following along. But if you look a layer deeper, the teacher's actually following the student, right? The teacher's responding to the student's drive to receive, to learn, has to present things in a way that work with the way the student is and bring the student up and change the student, and therefore can't impose themselves on the student. If the student doesn't get it, you can't just keep insisting that they get it that way. It's not going to work. So now, in the dynamic between the godly soul and the rational soul, if we were to say that it's like a teacher and a student, who's following who? If it's going properly. What? We're not talking about the animal soul. The rational soul and the godly soul. Who's in charge here? What? So the rational soul has to, this is what our text is saying, is the rational soul has to be fortified in God's soul. The rational soul has to make itself a really good student of the 
godly soul. So what will it look like? It'll look like who's in charge? The godly soul. Again, when you look at a class, who, who, does, who does it look like is running the show? But if you think about it, what's really going on beneath the surface? So when you look at a person, this person we're describing, what does it look like is running the show? The rational soul or the godly soul? It looks like the godly soul, but that's because the rational soul taken the shape of the godly soul. As said, look, I'm going to be a student of the godly soul. I want the godly soul to take this ultimate truth that justifies all reality of God and explain it to me. Give it to me. I'm willing to follow. I'm willing to learn. So it's like the, the good student makes the mediocre teacher into a good teacher. What would happen if it's reversed? What would happen if the rational soul is not really interested in following the godly soul? And the godly soul now tries to take charge. Existential longing. It would become what we call kindergarten. Right? Isn't that what kindergarten is? Do students, do little kids, in, you talk kindergarten, do students in kindergarten like, are very excited to wake up in the morning and learn their shapes and their colors? I mean, I have little kids. I know that sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. And, Smallest things you do are super. Oh, but why? Why? Because of the people. Because of the people. So they're really excited, and I know because I have little kids, they're really excited. Yeah, my, 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 my four year old now, he's in second, I don't know what you would call it in English, but he's in the second year of official kindergarten. They start, the first year is three to four, second year is four to five. And yeah. So. What? And then first no, and then you have then you have one more year, five to six, and then first grade. So he's in Rav Shalom's class, and you know, in his world, there's like there's 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 there's, there's five beings. There's Hashem, there's Tati, there's Mami, there's Rav Shalom, there's the Rebbe. And like they're all like whoa, Rav Shalom this, Rav Shalom like, and it's in the context that he's a, Rav Shalom is is such an amazing person that he wants. He repeats what Rav Shalom said. He wants to know what Rav Shalom like he wants. Yeah. So he's getting up in the morning. He's excited to go yeah. to the Aleph Bays or to Rav Shalom. Yeah. Now, Rav Shalom teaches Aleph Bays. So now Aleph Bays is important. Yeah. But you see, that's a very different dynamic, right? So couldn't the godly soul do that? Could the godly soul just be amazing and like this, this, this inspiring, or maybe, you know, we'll do with the inspiring, this inspiring force in the person's life that's really trying to encourage the rational soul to really want to, He'll pay attention to what the godly soul has to say. Could that happen? Sure. In fact, that would probably describe most of us. But what is our text describing? What kind of person? The opposite. The rational soul has become a devoted disciple of the godly soul. And so does the godly soul have to spend any time being inspiring, being motivating? No. They can get to the hard work of really changing and transforming the entire inner workings of the person. So, and the, so there is a stage where a person can be in, right? Where the rational soul is looking for stuff to rationalize life, but it's not particularly devoted to the, to the godly soul. Right? So what does the godly soul have to do? What do you have when, to do? When the rational soul isn't paying attention to it? Yeah. Inspire. That's the that's the that's the chesed side. That's the nice side. What's the other possibility? What? Motivate. Well, you can motivate in two ways. One is being inspiring. It's another way. Guilty. Yeah. 
Yeah. You ever heard of Jewish guilt? Yeah. Yeah. What? Can you, know, you like explain But Jewish guilt? Yeah. Jewish guilt is, I, I'm like, I, you have a person and they're not necessarily, their life is not devoted to the service of God. But then you feel guilty about not participating enough in some Torah mitzvah type of thing. And basically that's like, you know, that's like the, the, the teacher in high school when all the kids are misbehaving and the teacher comes in and says, you know, you guys are horrendous. You should be ashamed of yourselves. And like really lets it out and, the, and, and like, Everyone's like a little bit, whoa, I mean, we should behave because like, that that, that's uncomfortable. We don't like that anymore. Right? Sometimes the godly soul does that. Sometimes the godly soul is all warm and cuddly. It makes you inspired. Like, you know, and you go to a Chabad house, there's a, there's a nice Shabbos dinner. You're like, wow, this Judaism stuff is really interesting. But at no point is the rational soul in these situations really, with any sort of like autonomy and maturity, devoted to the godly soul. Right? That's not what it is. Right? The person is not living, it's not devoted to service of God. That's not what their life is about. That's not what they're trying to be, right? It's like sometimes when you're in school and there's a teacher you really, really like, you get into the subject, but not because you like the subject. You like the teacher, right? And sometimes you really do really well on the subject because the teacher just makes your life a living hell. The best thing is just like do your work and get a good grade and like, right? But then there's something else, like you're devoted to the subject and whatever the teacher says needs to happen in order for you to excel on that subject, that's what you're going to do because it's coming from you. So what is, when our text saying is fortifying the divine soul, it's talking about a relationship where the rational soul has become a devoted disciple of the godly soul. The godly soul doesn't need to discipline it, doesn't need to inspire it, doesn't need to motivate it. The rational soul is like, the only thing that can justify life is something that's ultimate truth. Ultimate truth, the only place you get that is the godly soul. So, as far as I'm concerned, the only thing I'm interested in hearing messages from is? The divine soul. The problem is the divine soul is very lofty and I'm not that lofty. So I need the divine soul to work with me to bring me up to that truth. And that's all I care about. And now you have a dynamic where the godly soul is really trying to to educate and to teach and to transform the rational soul sense of reality to be more in line with the truth of God. Does that describe most of our relationship with our own soul? Does that, does that, does that sound like you? Not can you relate to it. I'm saying, does it sound like you overall? And the answer should be no. If it does sound like you, one of two things. Either you are a very, very special person and do a good job at hiding it, or I'm not, making good, not doing a good job of explaining what I mean. Do we, have you ever met someone who is really devoted to something? Like really, really devoted to something? Yes. What happens to everything else in their life? Well, takes all the effort. Takes That's right. So, is really, really being a disciple of my godly soul, is everything else in my life taking a back burner to that? Ask yourself that question. Everything else. Could be like a semi-devoted student. Yeah, it could be a semi-devoted student, in which case... It's not totally devoted. And for our purposes here, and we're, for our purposes, what it's talking about, this is we're going to require an absolute commitment. Um, you know, I, I'm not advocating this. I'm just telling you this is, this is true, is that many professions treat their profession like it's the army. Now, in the army, it really is. Like, if you dedicate the army, that comes above and beyond everything else, including? Everything. Everything. Your family, your life, everything, right? It's all... But like people go to medical school and like there's this thing like well if you're gonna be a doctor then everything else has to take over and, and if you get divorced well that too bad and you're becoming a doctor it's worth it right mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily saying like that's the way it should be 
But there are things that are that absolute and require that much dedication that unless you're 100% dedicated, it doesn't happen. No one, no one, no one is a part-time um, you know, Olympic gold medalist. Unless, like, God grants some genetic gift, right? But, like, regular people, it just can't happen. Even if you're really athletic. Um, there was once a, 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 a Jew came to one of the Hasidic mentors and, um, who was known to be somewhat blunt, to put it very mildly. Um, um, his name was Reb Zaman Moshe, Reb Zaman And he came to him, a young man who was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, full of himself and a little bit delusional, came to him and said, how do I achieve true love of God? And so he said, well, 20 years of critical self-examination followed by 20 years of immersion in Hasidic text, followed by, um, or sorry, I skipped one. 20 years, uh, 20 years of not indulging in any personal pleasures, followed by 20 years of critical examination, followed by 20 years of immersing yourself in Hasidic text and prayer. Afterwards, then you might truly love God. I mean, like, like what do you think this is like something you do part-time? It's like a real thing. Like, you, like, I, to feel, I guess you can feel inspired. I get you feel, feel inspired, like, turn on some music, you'll feel inspired, right? That's, this idea that the rational soul is looking, saying what justifies life, and it comes to the sense that what justifies life is only the messages coming from the godly soul. Therefore, as a person, my life is totally given over to trying to give the godly soul the opportunity to change me, to educate me. As in it's that all-consuming. It's that all-consuming. Okay. Now... Could, now, is it, now, I don't want to clear. I'm presenting this as an absolute because I know where the rest of the chapter is going to go. It's going to talk about, if we just go a little bit further, to such an extent, okay? We're talking about where this leads to in the ultimate. But obviously, it's not like if you don't have the ultimate, then you have nothing, right? We can have this more, we can have this less. But what our chapter wants to talk about is how this actually goes if you take this dedication to the, the ultimate, to the extreme. Okay, now, how does the godly soul actually reach and educate and teach and transform the rational soul. Like, how does that work? Torah? No, Torah is not, is not going to be good enough. No. Unfortunately, Torah does not, not suffice. Is it by triggering more desire to learn? Nope, no. Nope. Because the, what the godly soul has to do is the godly soul has to get the rational soul to really appreciate God. Convinces the rational soul that following God is the only option if you want to live a life. Yeah, but it's not. But 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 that's not really. That's not really the way it is. It's that the rational soul does a good job of showing the godly soul that the only thing that's of any value is God. And then by default, the rational soul reaches its own conclusion that the only way to live a life worth living would be devoted to God. Do you hear the difference in what you said and what I said? What you said is that it tries to convince it of a conclusion. 
The, rash, the godly soul is not going to try and convince the rational soul of a conclusion. It's going to try and it's trying to educate the rational soul about the reality of something. So, let me, let me explain to you what I mean. Um, if you go to the doctor, and, you, and the doctor, there's two kinds of doctors. Go to the doctor, and the doctor will say, um, you know, if you keep, um, I don't know, smoking, you're going to die. So you say, does that mean I should stop smoking? The doctor says, do whatever you want. Just letting you know. Like, if you keep smoking, you're going to die. Like, it's up to you. If, li- if living is important to you, the facts are, like, that smoking will make you die earlier, right? That's one kind of doctor. The other kind of doctor says, you really need to stop smoking. You say, well, why? Because you'll die. Okay. What is the first doctor not doing? Not assuming that you want to Right. Not, I'm, not, I'm not telling you what you should want or not want. I'm just telling you how the reality of the world is. What's the second doctor doing? Right, trying, trying, to, trying to get you to make a particular choice. What is the godly soul trying to do with the rational soul in this process here? Is it trying to get the rational soul to be convinced that it should learn Torah, do mitzvahs? No, that's not what it's trying to do. What the, rational soul, what the godly soul is trying to do is trying to make it very, very clear that God is the only thing that's real. God is the only thing that's meaningful. God is the only thing that's true. Now, if you care about justifying your existence, that kind of leaves you with a conclusion, right? Which is, the only existence worth having is one, which is totally devoted to God. But it, it's letting the rational soul do that part on its own. Okay. Um, when you, you, there's a there's a there's a joke that uh, it's not that funny, but there's a, there's a joke that I heard from a, a psychiatrist. What's the difference between someone with, what's the difference between a neurotic person, someone with neurosis, and a psychotic person, someone with psychosis? So, a psychotic person thinks that one plus one equals three. A neurotic person knows that one plus one equals two, but it really bothers them. Meaning psychotic people don't experience reality the way it is. Neurotic people experience reality the way, they, the way it is, but they just can't handle it. I said it's not that funny. He thought it was very funny, but you know, it's one of those things that you know, if you're in a profession, you have your inside jokes, but if you're out the profession, it's not that funny. Okay, so what is it, what is what is the what is the godly soul trying to educate the rational soul about? God is the only real thing. Right, right. One plus one equals two. God is the only thing that's real. Like, this is the way it is. The rational soul, being who he, the rational soul is, will draw its own conclusions from that, which is going to be what? Well, if God is the only thing that's real, if God is the only thing that's true, then the only life worth living is a life that is devoted to God. But the, ra- the godly soul doesn't have to, like, say that. And it's not into saying that. It doesn't care to say that because it doesn't really... It's not trying to convince the person of something that they should do. It's trying to just... Expose and reveal the truth of God. Right. Right. How does that show in a person's experience? I mean, like a person with these. Two that this person. Oh, so that's what I want to get. At. This person is spending a lot of time in their mind thinking about why they should serve God or about God. Mm-hmm. Which one? Well, when he's. This person we're describing. 
What are they spending a lot of time? What's going on in their mind all the time? Thinking about God. About God, not why I should serve God. So it was why I should serve God. If you're spending a lot of thinking about why I should serve God, that means that there's something. That's kind of more kindergarten. It's like, you know, the teacher's trying to make it fun and interesting and exciting because you're not so 100% naturally on board to sit in front of looking, identify funny squiggles on a board. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like you ever have a math teacher saying, and this is why you need to know this because, you know, that's an indication that you don't have a bunch of PhD math students in the room, right? Because if you did, they wouldn't need that line. They're just like, just teach us the math. We're interested in the math. We don't need the well, why. And so for many of us, because our rational soul is not totally devoted, is not really 100% a disciple of the godly soul, our godly soul does engage in this is why you should, this is why you should, this is why you should. It's just a reality. But it, so... To, to the godly soul. So this person, yeah, so this person, right, that we're describing, who's fortified to such an extent, is that the, the person, which is the rational soul, is their mind is totally obsessed with coming to sense and know the reality and the truth of God. And the fact that, therefore, I should serve him is just, well, it's automatic. I mean, you know, if this is the reality, then, then, then life can't be lived disconnected from reality. I'm a rational being. That's obvious. But if the rational soul hasn't, isn't such a good student, then the godly soul has to do more of the kindergarten activity and really try and, like, make it seem appealing, or maybe use some Jewish guilt, and really, you know, maybe we could even use this word being a little bit manipulative to get the person to get on board with the whole God-Judaism thing. And so this person's experience that we're describing when the person is fortified their divine soul, they're moving away from that persuasive manipulative to much more what would feel like an objective awareness of God. Yeah, and almost. It sounds like a tzaddik, though. I'm, I'm. Let's keep reading. When a person fortifies the divine soul and wages war against his animal soul, this person is called incomplete righteous. Ah, yes, okay. it's a tzaddik. Okay. Yeah, yes, this is right. If you want to know, like, what goes into becoming a tzaddik, like, what is step one? If I want to be a tzaddik, I want to be a righteous person. So twenty years No, 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 self-critic, uh, uh, cri- uh, 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 self-contemplation. Yeah, and then 20 years of immersion in Hasidic texts and prayer. Um, so no, but from this text, what is the first? Is that my, I as a human being, as a being who seeks some rationalization from justification for my existence, I'm not just a cow, has to, that part of me has to become totally devoted to the godly soul. That's but step one. A tzaddik has a, has a rational soul that cares about himself and yes 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 we're we're not finished with the process but that's step one right that the person is and that's what it means the person is fortifying the divine soul the student has become such a good student that the teacher now is the opportunity and is motivated to teach in the highest way possible atzadi cares about fulfilling his own life's purpose or about god i'm saying which part i'm saying there's like, a tzaddik cares about fulfilling... Well, see, here's the problem. Is you're, 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 you're talking about a tzaddik as like, it's like a, it's like a status, and like, boom, like tzaddik. Yeah, it is. But a tzaddik is a description of a what? Of a person. Right, okay, people are dynamic, right? So what is going on? Is that either, he's a person. What is a person? A person is someone who exists, they live a life, and because they're a person, not an animal, they feel like that life needs some kind of what? Justification. 
justification. And he has a sense that that justification can only come from where? From, from the message of the godly soul. And therefore, but he as a person becomes totally devoted to a student, being a student of his godly soul. And what does a student do? A student is taught to reach places that they are never able to get to on their own. And so this person starts to know God and see God in the ways that regular human beings don't. So what makes him a tzaddik is that he chose God. Yeah. A lot of people choose God just now. That's right, until they're hungry. Right. <laughs> until the air conditioner turns off. Right? Until it's a fast day. Yeah, until, until someone didn't give me a compliment after I gave a good class, right? Until, right, we all choose until, right? That, yes, that's exactly the point. Eric, are you, um, or is this text, well, like, what's the word? Encouraging, though, like, completely dismissing other parts of No, this? so to be honest about Tanya, Tanya does not say anything prescriptive about what a person should do until chapter 14. This is just describing the reality of how people can be. And then it's saying, given now that we know the full range of what a Jew can experience relative to their godly and animal soul, now what should you like focus on? What should you set as your goals? What should you consider to be? What should you expect of yourself? That really only kicks in chapter 14. So we're describing a, a reality of people. Now, whether you should aspire to do this. Now, I just I want to point out, this is, this is very important here. Many people make a common mistake, and this is true about everything in life, not just this where they mistake the symptom for the cause. There's, a, there's an old Hasidic tale about this, where the, the one, uh, this guy who lived out, outside the village comes to the shtetl, the village, and he sees no one's, in, no one's outside. Can't find, finds it very odd. And everyone finds everyone's gathered in the shul. He says, what are you all in the shul? In the synagogue. It's not holiday. He says, it's a fast day. Fast day? So when we declare it a fast day, because there's a drought. Why do you need to fast for a drought? What do you mean? Pray to God, fasting, God should grant to hear our prayers. So I understand. It's a drought, it's a simple solution. And they say, okay, what's your simple solution? Right before it rains, the cat goes and hides behind the oven. Right? There's an oven to keep the house warm. So all you do is you take the cat and stick it behind the oven and it'll start raining. <laughs> Which I think is obviously stupid, but, but it's stupid when you say that, but we do this all the time, is that we, we take the, the symptom, the effect of something, and we start treating it as if it's the cause of something. If I am really, really, really dedicated, will stuff fall by the wayside? Yeah. If I start cutting out stuff from my life, does that make me really dedicated? No. But you see people often do this. Like, now I'm going to be really dedicated. I'm not more dedicated than I was before, but I like to think of myself as dedicated. I want to pretend that I'm dedicated. And so I act like a dedicated person acts, and what I start doing is cutting out stuff in my life. And does that lead a person to, like, really excel? No, it usually causes a person to break. So independent of whether this itself is, like, something we should all expect of ourselves and aspire to or not, which is a topic for later, even if it would be, what would be the mechanism? Is the cutting other things out of my life or it's the cultivating that, aware, that desire to, to, to be aware of God? That would have to come first. In other words, it would have to be choosing God, not, not rejecting the physical world or something like that. And by the way, that lesson on any level of spiritual growth is going to be true. Okay. That if you if you starting out with rejecting, you're mimicking something that you don't really have. 
That creates a totally different question, which is how does a person like be, feel more dedicated and devoted to something than they already do right now? That's a good question, right? But we're clearly starting at, in this description of the person after that has reached a certain point. There's a, there's a, there's a tremendous level of dedication in this person's sense that the, the, the place to get real justification has to come from something that absolute, that's godly, and, so they be, and they're that dedicated. And... Therefore, they're not rejecting things out of their life. They're just dedicated. What if, what if they're starting from a point of making space for the growth of such the change? So, so, so there's a, there's a, there's a, in, in, um, there's a work called Shari Tshuva, the Gates of Tshuva from Rabbeinu Yona, one of the medieval sages, um, Legend has it um, that he wrote the book because he criticized Maimonides very harshly, which resulted in some book burnings, and later on realized that the Rambam Maimonides was not the evil person he made him out to be, but it was too late to apologize because he couldn't travel to where the Rambam was buried, and so he wrote the book as a way of... I don't know how true the story is or not. It's a good story. But it's a very good like, practical guide for, for repentance, for tshuva, turning to God. And one of the things that he describes is something, he describes two practical concepts of tshuva, um, which are called tshuvas hageder, the tshuva of the fence, and tshuvas hamishkal, the tshuva of the scales. And tshuvas hageder means like this. There are things that drag you down, right? And so if you want to make change, you need to figure out how those, get, keep those things from dragging you down because, you know, it's like if you're swimming and, um, you know, you have a weight on your leg, you're not going to do very well, right? Okay. But how do you get those things, how do you get those things out of your life that are dragging you down? So he calls it a fence. And the idea of a fence is you have to figure out not what those things are, but how they get into your life. In other words, um, simple example, let's say a person realizes like if they keep eating non-kosher food, that's really, in, that's really holding back their growth in Judaism. So they want to keep kosher. Okay. But they really like McDonald's. And they drive by McDonald's every day on the way to work. Well, what does that mean? What would shuva together mean? It means now you like, have to like, stop eating McDonald's. It doesn't mean stop eating McDonald's. It means take a different route. So that you, that's what you do is you make a fence that you, 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 you cut off the thing before the thing that has a hold on you. And, and, and there's many reasons for that, but one of the reasons for that is that if you try and cut off the thing that has its hold on you, then you just get caught up in it, and it drags you down. The fighting, it drags you down. So you have to figure out what is the thing, what is the change which is less costly, but more profitable. Make that change, and then that cuts out, right? That's like a fence, right? So that would be one idea of making space, called Shubha together. And you have to think about that for yourself. Like, okay, if this thing is clear dragging me down, but like fighting it head on, just like, well, it doesn't work. I mean, it can work if you have a tremendous amount of willpower, but then that drains you. You don't have any room left for growth. So you figure out, okay, backtrack, backtrack. Where's the small, practical, reasonable, sustainable change that then cuts that thing out? Okay? And the other thing is what's called shuvah samishkal, which is that any time that you create a void in your life, you must fill up by something corresponding. 
Otherwise, it will not work, like a scales. So if I no longer reading Christian literature because I find it interesting, you only drag me down, well, then I better have something else that takes its place that is cons- consistent with the growth I want to have, okay? Um, you know, if, you, if, a person, if a person has a, uh, they, even, this is true in anything, if a person eats things and they want to stop eating for health reasons, what are you going to replace that with? Or if it's not about the food, it's about the habit and the, how are you going, what, what other calming down habit are you going to use? You're going to need to replace, you can't just create voids. So it's true sometimes you need to make space for growth, but even that is not just done by cutting stuff out. So tshuva samishkal, tshuva together, those are, but, but ultimately the real change has to come because you have a desire for the growth, a desire for the positive thing. Okay. So now, what happens the more that you become, the more that you're a good student and this teacher is a good teacher, is that the student starts to become more and more like the teacher, Right? the students start seeing things that the, that the teacher sees that they didn't used to see before, right? To the point that our sages say after 40 years, the student finally achieves the same understanding as the teacher. Now, that 40 years is not like on the calendar. The Alter Rebbe once said about himself that um, he finishes the 40 years after one hour. His, his teacher, the Maggid of Mizrich, used to say Hasidic discourse, and the Alter Rebbe said, after an hour, I've achieved that 40-year shift. Some people like live for 500 years and they still wouldn't get the 40-year shift. But it's a level of growth. You work on it and you think about it, right? Okay. So what would happen over time if the, the divine, this person has fortified the divine soul is that the divine, the rational soul would be less and less a separate kind of thing. It would just kind of almost become an extension of the divine soul. Okay? There's actually an interesting law in, in the Sanhedrin, in the high court in Judaism, which we don't have anymore, Sometimes there are differences of opinion, and you have to take a vote. So sometimes two people can't count as two separate votes, and one of the one of the reasons why they can't might not count as the same as two separate votes is if you have a if you have a teacher and their disciple. If you have a teacher and disciple both on the court, they don't count as two independent votes. Why? Because the student's emulating the teacher. Now, the idea is not that the student is parroting the teacher. The idea is that the teacher has shaped the student's mind. So the student is literally just an embodiment of the mind of the teacher. So you have the mind of the teacher kind of like in two physical bodies. It's not really two independent thoughts. And there's some interesting discussions like how long, what counts as a disciple for this regard. Not anybody learned from anything from anybody. But when somebody really has you've devoted your life to, to, to learning from them and, and they've shaped how you think about everything, then in a sense, their mind lives on in you. Um, in, in the, the Kabbalah and Hasidism almost describe this like a body and a soul. So what ends up happening is that as this goes on, is that the rational soul starts just becoming more and more of just a conscious embodiment of the godless soul. That's what would happen, right? The same way that if you devote your life to mathematics and study from a very brilliant math professor, right? As time goes on, you will see things the way they see things. And... Now, there will still always be some, some level of difference. Not ultimately the same, but... Okay. So eventually what happens is that the, there's, a, there's a fusion 
that occurs because the, the godly soul has succeeded in transforming the rational soul into its representative, so to speak, into its ambassador, into, it, into, its, um, into a, a continuation of itself. But that happens because of the power of the godly soul or the, or the rational soul. Who's really making that happen? The rational soul, right? Because if the godly soul has to impose it, then we end up what looks like for most of us, right? Which is some combination of inspiration and Jewish guilt. And then a little bit of trying to grow. Which is fine. I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to be clear that that what's what this is. And the text is talking about something to a far greater extent. Yes? Um, so it sounds like this is very lofty, but at the same time, the other, like any persuasion, the way you're describing it, it sounds like it's better to have, at least my feelings, to have a little bit of this element versus like a lot of the persuasion thing and then come a long way because you're not really moving in an, from an authentic place. Yes. So the Tanya's view later on, because we're not going to get there anytime soon, is that even someone who doesn't going to have to this extent should still adopt as much as possible as this mindset and can come to some of a, I guess you call it, kind of a stable equilibrium where they're, where the devotion reaches a certain level of a threshold that is attainable. It's hard, but it's attainable. Whereas the, the ultimate level we're going to be describing in chapter 10 is not usually going to be attainable for, for everybody. Um, but that being said, I don't, want to, I don't want to teach the other thing that I'm not teaching now. So at some point we'll get to chapter 14 whenever that happens. Okay, fine. But then what does this person do? It's odd. This, this, this person, person, the rational soul. The, uh, <laughs> it doesn't just, right? It fights with the animal soul. Now, what is that about? Because the animal soul hasn't just been sitting quietly the whole time. It's like unhappy with what's going on. It's not satisfied with the serenity. Okay, so now what do you think this fighting means? Does this fighting... Is this fighting in a... Um, violent in the way? Violent way? What? An well, let me ask you a question. What do you think the goal of, of, of the fight is? Which is a good question. Like when two people are fighting, what is the goal of the fight? This is actually, by the way, if you can figure out what the goal of your fight is, um, life is so much better. Like for instance, you're all gonna get married. Um, you're gonna fight with your spouse because that's what spouses do. My, 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 my mentor said before I got married is make sure you fight often. And fight well. Um, what is the goal of fighting with your spouse? Not always. There's some things you can't agree on, but you're close. No, but like to get closer. Get closer, right? There's agreement in getting closer. Like, yeah. if you that's actually an important thing, important distinction. Being close does not depend on being in agreement. Right, right. Just to understand each other, to feel, to the goal is is twofold. That you feel validated, right? You feel you, you you feel like you're accepted and, and close, and you also and you also really see the other person. Right? That's the goal of fighting. And so a lot of the conflict in fighting is because what's happening is like I don't feel valid, I don't feel heard, I don't feel seen, right? Okay, but now I end up fighting in such a way which is actually making it easier for that to happen or harder for that to happen. Right. So if I, it was clear to me what the goal of the fight was, <laughs> we fight very differently. That's what he meant by fight well. Fighting well, he says, fight with the goal in mind. The goal is, yes, you are hurt. Yes, you disagree. Yes, there's tension. Yes, there's conflict. You, that needs to come out. But in what way? 
in a way that the goal is to be closer, not to make the other person run out of the room crying. That wasn't the goal. Okay. Although, so, so, so what's the goal? Now, for instance, what was, when, in World War II, the Allies fought the Axis powers. What was the goal? To conquer No. It was just a mess. There wasn't really a goal. Yeah. To keep fascism from spreading. Okay, but more specifically, what was the goal? To, to kill out. What? Victory. But what? So that's asking. What was the definition of victory? This is very important. Like, war, good wars that are fought well have definitions of victory. To stop them from. So this was actually, the, 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 they defined victory as unconditional surrender. There's, very, there's, there's different kinds of victories. A victory can mean, for instance, like in the first Gulf War, they defined against Saddam Hussein when they invaded Kuwait. Victory was defined as liberating Kuwait. If Kuwait is liberated, we have done. Saddam Hussein is still in charge. He's still a dictator. He's still a horrible person. Iraq is whatever. We're not, our, that is not our, our what we, winning this war means what? Liberating Kuwait. When the Allies fought the Axis, what did they define? What did they define victory as? Unconditional surrender. What does unconditional surrender mean? That um, the Germans are no longer a power. That's right. Right. You don't sit down at a negotiating table with us. We tell you how you run the show, and that's it. And until Germany and Italy and Japan agree that we run the show, we're going to keep bombing you. That was. That was. That was what they defined victory as. Because they really, I mean, not Japan, not so much, but Germany did try to make you know, surrender with conditions. Like, no, no, no. Now, why was because of the fear of the threat that fascism spread. So we're going to wipe it out completely, unconditional surrender, and we will rebuild your country as we want it to be, and then we'll move out. Okay? Um, you know, the, the, the Japan fought the war, not with the goal of the unconditional surrender of the United States, but with the idea of expanding an empire over the... Western Pacific, right? So, so th- there's a notion of what does it mean to win, right? And you hopefully, if you're wise, you fight your war with your strategic goals, your victory in mind, right? Very often we don't do that. We fight wars both geopolitically and on an interpersonal level. One of the things that, you know, I have a friend who's a, who's a judge, a dying in a rabbinic court. And so he said, one of the things you have to do is you figure out, like, get the people to figure out what do you want? Like, what, why are you here? Because usually by the time they get to court, they're so angry at each other. And, and it's like, what do you want? You want money? You want the other, like, like, fig, like, what is the goal of this? Um, and getting people to just kind of think clearly about that. So when, when you have a war, before we talk about how the war is fought, we need to understand what are the strategic objectives? What is victory? So when the rational soul is now going to fight with the animal soul, right? That's the one who's fighting, right? It's not the godly soul fighting, it's the... Right? He fortifies his divine soul and he wages war against his animal soul. What is he defining victory as? You can read the text and um, try and figure it out. Eradicating, Eradicating the evil from? From the animal soul. Okay. So you have this thing called the animal soul and you're trying to get rid of it. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wait for the next week to talk about like describing it, but it has an, a certain element to it, right? Okay, so I'm gonna give you an, an analogy. Okay, if I have something that has 
something else in it that I don't want to be part of it. Like, for instance... Um, fly in a cup of wine. I have a fly in a cup of wine, right? So what is my goal? To get the fly out. To get the fly out of the wine, right? right? The goal um, is really to drink and enjoy it. Uh, ultimately to get the wine, right? But in the, okay. Now, um, right? in other words, there's something that is useful and beneficial, but there's something else in it that's problematic. I'm going to get rid of the problematic thing, right? Um, why do we cook food? One of the reasons we cook food is making it easier to digest. What's another reason we cook food? Tastes good. Nutrients. I'm on just health reasons. But oh. you're right, it does taste good. What? That's the digesting. It makes it easier to digest food. What? What's the other reason to cook food? So you don't get hurt from it or something. Yeah, you don't get hurt from the food. Right? Like eating raw chicken is generally a bad idea. <laughs> raw beef? Perfectly okay. Yeah. You know why? No. For some reason, um, they do testing in most um, um, meat uh, packing plants uh, for the um, contamination in the beef. And so the contaminated beef doesn't get on the market. And they don't do the testing in chickens. And so the contaminated chicken does go on the market, but simple cooking kills it, so it's fine. Like they could do salmonella testing on chicken, which just raise the price of chicken a lot. Yeah. So they just say just, and so and the benefit would be you could eat it raw, but you could just cook it. Anyway, um, yeah, but right, there's stuff in it that you want to get rid of. Okay, um, when you get precious metals out of the ground, you don't just make them into jewelry as is. What do you have to do? Polish them before polishing them. Melt it down. Melt it down. Why? There's other, there's other stuff in it, right? Yeah. Right. So. There's this sense that the animal soul, it's not all evil. There's apparently something worth keeping around, but there's also something evil in there. And so this war is a process of getting the evil out, right? Okay. Well, let me give you an... If somebody is, has a, a, um, a serious misconception about something, let's think about this in life. If you someone have a serious misconception, I'm not going to use... Some, I'm not going to use the, uh, um, uh, any controversial examples. I'll use like a silly example. I'll use a controversial example and I run the risk that someone actually has that misconception and then we get into that. Right, so I'm going to use a silly example. Okay? Let's say someone really, really believes that the lizard people are running the, the entire world order. Okay? I don't hope no one in the room is bought into that one. The lizard people. There's like, there's like, you know, they look like giant lizards and they're hanging out under the earth and, and they're running the world. Okay, fine. Let's say a person really believes that. You know if what? you think going up to them and like aggressively arguing that what they're is, is nonsense, do you think that's an effective way of getting that misconception out of their mind? They believe in what? They believe in right, yeah. Okay. But the thing is now, think about any misconception you have, and if someone were to come and very aggressively attack your misconceptions as false, stupid misconceptions. Because then your defenses go up. Okay. So, but if you come how in do you sly, get rid... What? You come in sly. Yeah, you have to figure out. Exactly. In other words, <laughs> right. In other words, you have to be creative. Kind of like Yaakov was about getting the blessings that his brother was supposed to get. He had to be very creative. Okay. Um, so there's the idea that you have to be creative about it. You have to figure out how to get in the head of the of the animal soul, right? 
or to put it this way, it is a diplomatic war. You know what a diplomat? You know what diplomacy is? The art of getting someone else to want to do what you want them to do. Yeah, that's the, so you can fight a war by bringing a bunch of weapons, right? And you know, sometimes you're overpoweringly def- power and the other person just capitulates and you wipe the floor with them or they get aggressive and they fight back, right? But neither of those eradicate the element, right? If you want to eradicate one element from another, you need to get inside them. And if you want to get inside of them, you have to be diplomatic, you have to be sneaky, you have to be creative, you have to figure out how to work. So how does the rational soul fight this war? So the rational soul has to understand the animal soul, has to know how to work with the animal soul, and has to get inside the animal soul and do something that gets the evil out. So if you think about this whole process, right, but think about the rational soul doing. Number one, it's a devoted disciple of the godly soul. And number two, when it's fighting the rational, when it's fighting the animal soul, in what way is it fighting the rational, the animal soul? In this very diplomatic way, in this very understand the enemy, get in the enemy's head, work with the enemy, and, and, and figure out the problematic enemy and get rid of it. Does this sound like, do any of these activities sound very aggressive? No. No. Because no, aggression won't work. That's right. Now, could you attack your animal soul in an aggressive way? Yeah. Yeah. People do this all the time. Have you ever made, like, have you ever felt, like, really, um... Like you, you, you figured out what life is really about, or at least you have a sense of it. Not totally, absolutely, but like it's, life is about this, it's not about that, and you're gonna make some real changes in life, and you're gonna do things right. You ever had that experience ever? And how long does that last? Why? That's right. That's right. Because the, you're, like, you're like, life is about purpose, and the animal soul is coffee. Oh, well, that's a good point, right? It's like, I have guns, the animal soul is, I have guns too, and my guns are bigger. Right? If, you, if, if the irrational soul goes headlong against the animal soul, even without the gods, just in life in general, if the rational soul gets headlong against the animal soul, who usually wins? Yeah. The animal soul. Like, it just doesn't work. In fact, think about it, a person and an animal. Like, if you're going to go head-to-head with an ox, like in physical combat, who's probably going to get hurt? But if you use your wits, right? At the end of the day, right, you can have one cowboy taking a whole herd of oxen across the United States, right? But that's because you're not fighting it in this kind of aggressive way. What are you doing? You're figuring out how the animal works and working with the animal to get what you want. So the idea is the rational soul, the, the war is not a war of wills and a war of, and a war of aggression, a war of who's stronger. It's a war of different agendas and one is hopefully smarter and more creative and more insightful and therefore is able to overpower uh, overpower or able to get the other to be what it wants them to be to remake the animal soul the way the rational soul wishes it to be not the way it starts out being which means getting rid of the evil in it Now, hopefully what should come away is that this entire process, both the fortifying the godly soul and the waging war against the animal soul, requires maturity, requires requires a person not being, not, not, you know, flying up and down and, you know, mood swings and inspiration and like, this is, this is, this is, this is, that requires a person to have like a real sense of inner stability, 
right? And a real sense of maturity and a real sense of personal responsibility. Like none of this works if a person is flying back and forth because sometimes they're inspired and sometimes they're not in the mood and sometimes everything's working. Like that won't work. That won't be what this is. And going back to what I said, even though this chapter is going to talk about what this looks like when you reach the highest extents of it, later on in time you'll say even on lower levels, that's still, some, that's still the model that even on lower levels that are more attainable for people, fighting the animal soul is not a battle of who's stronger. It's a battle of who's smarter. How does that practically look? Sometimes it means being honest and outsmarting the animal soul. For instance, just give you one very simple example. How do you feel after a period of self-indulgence? How do you feel? Anything. Just, and if I, indulgence means I'm doing something just because it makes me feel good with no thought of the consequences. And you like live, go through a period of that. Just like that's your modus operandi. You're doing that for like an afternoon, a day. How do you feel at the end of that? Right. You don't, you don't look back and like, ah, that was a, that was a well-spent three hours. Not well-spent. I mean, enjoyable. So now what you have to do is you have to think about this. You have to really think. Okay? This is not, by, on the, chapter 10 is taking this to a whole new level. I'm just going to a lower level, okay? Much lower than what's this chapter 10. Um, why does it feel like I need to go on a diet or that feels like fun but a little bit shallow? Or like so what? Which means what? Rational soul is unsatisfied. Which means it doesn't feel very good long term to live like an animal. Which means even from the animal soul's point of view, that's kind of silly. Like if I want a high quality life, I might want to think ahead of time about how things make me feel overall and not just in the moment. And maybe I want to live with that conscious awareness. And um, who's, who's, that's working within the framework of the animal soul, right? Right? You're speaking the animal soul's language. And the animal soul doesn't like to hear that message because it's, it's uncomfortably true. If you start speaking about purpose for purpose's sake, it's like the animal soul tunes out. But that actually, right. Right? it's like sometimes people don't want to hear things because they know if they actually listened, it would affect them. Mm-hmm. And so I have to figure out about how to like really be clear headed about that. It's like fighting temptation. So 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 maybe you have to spend some more time really having a clear sense, like with vivid imagination, of really what the whole not that one slice, but the whole thing feels like. What does it feel like to have wasted an afternoon and to waste five afternoons a week? And what does it feel like to have, look back on a year of that and have that in mind every day? Who is that affecting? The animal soul, on whose terms? The animal soul. Okay. Now, I'm not telling you like that's one, you just asked for like one little example of what I mean, right? But if you're now just going saying like, like, like life isn't about like indulgence, life is about serving, like, like the animal soul is not, like the animal soul like coffee, mm. cake, 
Like, and then it's over. Like, rarely does the rational soul hold up to the, the, the visceral experience of living life. How can you educate something that's on such a basic primitive level? Well, that's what we're going to have to get to, is that the evil in the animal soul um, is the evil, is, 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 there's, there's the evil part of it. The, it, it it's not, in essence, evil. So gonna, the animal soul is not as primitive um, or as irredeemable as we might make it out to be. Now, again, what I just described is explicitly not what it's talking about in chapter 10, but it's something that Altarba speaks about later on in chapter 14, where he says how, how we could take the same dynamic and apply it to a person who's maybe not on the level of the person in chapter 10. And he describes, like, like says, Ezu Chacham who is wise, someone who sees the future. Like, 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 see the totality of what you're involved in, and does that really feel good? Are you really, like, you're really okay with that? You know, none of us, it's one of those things that like, I'll give you one other thing the author ever says in another discourse, he says, this is it's a slightly different, slightly different, but it's the same idea. Put something in perspective. Do you remember that time six years ago when you were cut in line? Do you remember that? Probably not. But if it happened this morning, would you remember it? Would it ruin your day? Okay, now, God forbid your best friend died six years ago. You would remember that. So what does that tell you? It's more important. Right, because things that are important don't fade over time. They, 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 they are part of who we are. So if you start thinking about, well, how would I look at this in five years from now? How would I look at it in 10 years from now? Well, then maybe, it's not the same as Instagram. Maybe the weight and spin I'm putting on it is just like, it's just, it, it, it's very superficial. It's not real. I'm not, I'm not being honest about how it affects my quality of life. It's just like the sister of, of instant gratification. And so, you know, at the end of the day, like, if I, if I didn't get this thing or this thing didn't work out that way, most of those things in life don't really touch the real quality of living, which is why we move on in life and we don't even notice them, you know, a year, two years later. And then there's stuff we really do. It stays with us. So you start living life, well, what are those things? And start just like living only with those things. Your animal soul is going to be very different. Again, is that what it's talking about here in chapter 10? No, but it's a similar dynamic of it's a war that's diplomatic. You're, you're, you're working with it. You're not coming and just trying to smash it down. Okay? All right. Next week, we will start talking about um, the rest of the sentence. Evil, righteous inside, complete righteous suffering, all those other words. All right.